Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 355. This program is dedicated by Moshe and Rebecca Belinsky in loving memory of his mother, Asya Bas Benzian Alava Shalom, Yarsite on the 18th of Sivan. I hope everybody had a very powerful and transformative Matan Teda. The last program we did was before Shavuos, and now we are almost a week after Shavuos. Matan Teira has the power and gives the power to transform our very existence. Before that, Chassidus explains, based on different sources, that we did not have the ability for the spiritual to transform the material. And now, after Sinai, we have that power. It's something that should never be taken for granted. It's literally one of the most empowering statements and strings that we have is to change our very lives. And every year, this power is renewed with even additional strength. And especially this year, which was 3,333 years from when Sane originally occurred in the year from creation 2,448. So, as we are now at the conclusion of what's called the Yemei Tashlumin, the end of the days, the time of the Temple, where they fulfilled anything that they were missing that they did not achieve during the holiday. So now in spiritual terms, we can do the same. So we are, today is the 12th of Sivan. 12th of Sivan is seven days from Shavuos. So we'll speak about that. We'll speak about the chapter in the Torah this week, which is, and of course, we're going to discuss current events, especially in Eretz Yisrael, the rise of anti-Semitic acts all over the world, and other relevant topics, many of which you have sent questions about, many, many questions, and as is our custom, try to do this in a, even though I'm doing the speaking, we try to do this in a uh, collaborative, interactive fashion, your questions, and I do my best to provide answers based on chassidus, based on the Maimorim and Sichis and letters and directives from the Rabbeim, which of course encompasses the directives of Teira in general, to all the matters and issues and challenges that each of us faces. <clears throat> so let me begin with Yud Bey Sivan. Yud Bey Sivan. There is a story told, the Friedrich Rebbe says, that the Rebbe Rashab, they were once taking a walk, the sixth Chabad Rebbe, with, who was then the, the son of the fifth Chabad Rebbe. So he would become the sixth Chabad Rebbe, I should say. And we're taking a walk, and his father, the Rebbe Rashab, told him that Yud Bey Sivan, the 12th of Sivan, is a special day because it's the seventh day from Shavuos. So it's comparable to the seventh day from, of Pesach, Shvishal Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach, and comparable to the seventh day of Sukkot, which is a Shainer so those, are, those two days, of course, are holidays. The seventh day of Shavuos is not a holiday, but it still has that element. And Kol Shvin Chavivin, all sevens are precious. The number seven has a precious role. The seventh day of the week is Shabbos, the seventh year is Shemitah, the sabbatical, and many other qualities of number seven. Seventh month is Tishrei, when you count from Nisan, from Nisan being the first month. But the key distinction is, and the Rebbe spoke about this, and Pasha's Nosei Tov Shin Chov Dalid, 
which would be um, the year uh, 1964, that the significance of it, and also the distinction is, that those days, the seven days of the Pesach and seven day of Sukkot, as I said, are both holidays, and they both complete the cycle of that particular holiday. So in that sense, the 12th of Sivan does the same thing. It's like the completion of a cycle. However, because Matan Teira, as I mentioned, was given in order to transform the world, so the seventh day of Shavuos is a weekday. Technically, it's a weekday. It's not a, it's not a Yom Tov. It's not a holiday. So though spiritually it has that power, but it's the power also to permeate our existence. So here we are on the 12th of Sivan, and we're concluding the cycle, we're concluding the power of Matan Teira. Now, of course, the power continues on. But like in any given situation, there's the time when you are in the, in the engine room, so to speak, and, and gleaning and drawing energy into your life. And then you have to carry that into the rest of our days and the rest of the year. So the power of Matan Teira is with us right now, the power to transform our lives. And it couldn't be a better time because we're facing, obviously, challenges Every period in time, every era has its challenges, but we have now our challenges both in the Middle East and here, coming after COVID and all its difficulties. And of course, the Miran tragedy that happened on Lagba Emer, what happened on the night of Shavuos in the Stolner based Medrash in Israel. And of course, the attacks that, were, uh, that uh, killed a number of people and most importantly, threatened our brethren in the Holy Land. So though there's a ceasefire, but we all know ceasefire means exactly that. It's just a ceasefire. That's all. It's a word. We still have, we still have a festering problem here. So we'll address that. But I want to first talk about Pasha Baalescha, also in the context of Chassidus Applied. So Baalescha is a topic we've talked about many times. It's one of the powerful themes right in the beginning, the idea of self-generated effort. Talking about Matan Teira, so Sinai gave us strength, but then we have to act on it. Nothing is just given on a platter. You get things on a platter. You get the gift. Matan Teira means a gift. Matan from the word matana, gift. But then the gift has to be utilized and appreciated and internalized. So that effort, self-generated effort, you see right in the beginning of Baal Eischa, when the Kohen Gadol, Aaron, the high priest, was told that when you light the menorah, make sure you light until the flame rises on its own. That's why it says, not Because the word for igniting or lighting a menorah would be, it means to ignite, it means to kindle. means to raise, raise the flames. What's the significance of raising? So it says Rashi, based on the Medrash and the commentaries, that it is the significance is that he had to wait till the flame catches. It takes a split second. What's the significance of that? Because, as the Rebbe explains in a number of places, because when you light the menorah, and the menorah symbolizes every form of igniting, when you ignite another soul, you inspire someone, education of our children, of our students, any form, anything that we do in this world is we are sent here to be walking and living menorahs, to illuminate the world around us. When you do it, you can do it in two ways. Education, can, you can teach someone information, data, facts, knowledge, or you can empower them. You teach them methodology. A methodology, how to think, not just what to think. And that empowers them forever. That's a flame rising on its own. So yes, you light the flame, you teach, you educate, you inspire, you illuminate. 
but then you make sure that they have the power to illuminate in the, with their own energy. They to the point that the flame rises on its own. Again, unbelievable lesson. So the transformation that Matan Torah, that Sinai, gave us the power to transform ourselves and the world around us in a true and real and permanent way is predicated on us doing that work. Meaning that going and now you have the strength, you're empowered to do something that can change life, that can change existence. Many cynics, skeptics say, you can't change anything. Yeah, we, we, do, we do our best, we go through the motions. The more things change, the more they stay the same, as the cynics say. The exact opposite is true according to the Torah. Sane told us, no, every good deed you do changes the world forever. Today in modern physics, that's not such a surprise. Because we don't measure things by quantity. The butterfly effect. A butterfly flutters, flutters its wing in Kansas City. It can create a typhoon in Singapore. Not sure why those cities are chosen. But the point is, any city it can happen anywhere. In the words of the Rambam, Maimonides, that a person has to always, always look at themselves and the world around them like the scales are equal, are balanced. So as many people there are on earth and as many deeds they have done, it's balanced. And you, with one good act, with one good word, with one good thought, tip the scale and bring redemption to you and to the entire world. And it's not just a metaphor. It's because we have that power. We have that, I don't even want to say atomic or nuclear because it's even beyond that. To rise in flames on our own. So this is a theme that is uh, recurrent, constantly important to renew and re-embrace and celebrate because it's the empowerment that it gives each one of us. There is a question that was asked. This is a while ago, but it's relevant to this chapter. Do the seven types of souls of the menorah correspond to different demographic groups? So the Alter Rebbe, Balatanya Shochanarach, who said many Maimorim discourses, has Maimorim in Lekute Teira, one of his classic works, written by his Chassidim, by, by, his, by, his, by the Mitla Rebbe, by the Rabbi Moshe, and different Manichim who wrote down the discourses. So there's a discourse that explains that the seven branches of the menorah, which we read about, we've been just discussing, correspond to the seven emotional divine attributes, which are the root of seven different types of souls. Souls that relate to chesed, kind, love and kindness. Souls that relate to gvura, discipline, and, and, um, uh, and, uh, and restraint. Souls that relate to teferis, compassion, beauty. Souls that relate to netzach, which is ambition, determination, drive. Souls that relate to hoid, humility, yielding. Souls that relate to yisod, which is foundation, bonding. And finally, souls that relate to malchus, dignity majesty, royalty. I'm not going to go into the details of all the seven. You can look them up, especially in my book that I've done, The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer, which goes through each seven and the seven times seven, which are the 49 days of the Omer, which we just concluded, which led into the 50th day of Sinai, of Matan Torah, Shavuos, on Shavuos. So the question is asking, do they correspond to the demographic? Well, based on what I just said, Absolutely. And what demographic groups mean, I'm not sure what you mean by demographic groups, but there are souls that have different personalities. Now, we must qualify things, because some of these personalities may not be natural to us. They may have been imposed upon us, 
They may, become, they may have been acquired, nurture versus nature. But yet, can, are we mass, yet each one has connection to primary, primarily to one. Because remember, due to iskalalus, what is iskalalus? Iskalalus means interconnectivity. Due to that, each chesed includes gvura, and gvura includes chesed, and so on. But there could be the primary force. Sometimes you can identify it, sometimes you can't. You have to have a special eye, because sometimes you see people who have different qualities. But the answer is yes. It would be a good study to psychologically create profiles that would demonstrate more or less the characteristics of each of these seven. So I wouldn't put demographic is usually a certain group in a particular part of society. So I don't know if it goes to groups. I think it was more by individuals. In other words, it's not like all people living in a certain city or of a certain race or color or creed that would define it. I would be more defined by personality types. So you can have one community, all seven, and most likely you do, which makes it even more beautiful because that's the whole point of the harmony of diversity that comes from all the different personality types. But it's very interesting because it also helps us, give us a power to navigate our lives. Life is challenging, and sometimes you need that, or you always need that spiritual GPS to navigate. And when you have a certain sense of your own personality type, you realize that's part of the mission that was given to me. Why do I have this personality type? I should use it well. So are you living up to your loving kindness if that's the personality? To, to the Gvura part, to the other parts. Because each one of them has a quality that the other does not have. And at the same time, to reiterate, they all need each other, so it's never a one-track thing. There's no such thing as just chesed. Chesed needs gvura, gvura needs chesed. As much love as you have, you need to have the discipline. It has to be done, measure, measured, seasoned. The same thing the other way around. Discipline without love, we know how that can lead to. So there's so many aspects when you start the interconnectivity. Okay, so that's what the Baalescha and the Yudbe Sivan provide. Just a little cross-reference, which I like to do. For those of you who would like to know more about this, since this is ready, we're in the eighth year of My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 355. So you can go to chassidusapplied.com, which is a special website dedicated to Hasidic resources, including all the My Life episodes. All the previous episodes are available there. There's also the forum where you can submit any question. Nothing is off limits. It's completely confidential and anonymous. And... Um, as well as uh, you can see there the essays and now the creative submissions of the previous year contest, the My Life is Applied Contest, and more resources. I just would mention, since it's a good opportunity, that I also teach a, a daily morning shear class in Emshech Ayim Beis. We now finished volume two and we're entering volume three, which is the volume that was never delivered, it was only written. Fascinating discussions about integrating the divine and existence and the Rebbe Rashab is now going into in volume three, much deeper understanding of how we transform, not just that, we, that darkness and challenges bring growth, but how the darkness itself becomes light. So if you'd like to join us, this is a morning class in Eastern time, every morning, 9.30 till 10.30 a.m. And on Sundays, 10 a.m. through 11.30 a.m. You can go to chassidusapply.com. There you have the Zoom Location plus on, on YouTube on the Chassidus Supply channel, my life Chassidus Supply channel, and I welcome you. Please join. You can ask questions. 
participate. Since we're on the topic, so this is a good time for the housekeeping of just announcing again, chassidusapply.com and all the resources that you can take advantage of, including uh, many other resources there that you can find that you can benefit from. Okay. So now, let us talk about some contemporary issues. And again, applying Torah and to our lives today. Because that's where I take all the material that I share. It's coming not from my own thoughts and ideas. It's things that I have read and learned and tried to adapt and tried to apply. Sometimes it's specific directives. Sometimes we have to extrapolate. And that's the, that's the goal of my life, Chassidus Applied. So here we are. So Israel has been under attack, and then a ceasefire was declared just last Friday. Um, so thank God it's holding up. But we all know that this we're talking about a powder keg. We're talking about a situation that's very volatile. And we've seen, unfortunately, we've seen the, the threat, the threats, and of course many questions that every one of us has. What will be? What can we do? So let me address that. And we'll begin with that. I'll also talk about the rise of anti-Semitic attacks and other uh, challenging questions and get through as much as we can. So, what should our attitude be to these recent attacks in Israel? I've given some talks on this topic right when the attacks began, um, but... Let me sum it up, but I'll refer you, gave a talk right before Shavuos called 3,330 years since Sinai. Why is Israel still burning? You can check it out. It's a short half-hour talk analyzing the situation, but also discussing maybe ideas, the things that we can do about it. I also, last week after Shavuos, I gave another talk about will there ever be peace in the Middle East? and a few other discussions to, in related topics. I'm mentioning them because since they were done already, check them out. Depending what channels you are, if you go to YouTube, it's very easy to find. If you're a subscriber to our channels, we have two channels, Meaningful Life and My Life, that you can subscribe to. You can also get these by email, by simply going to MeaningfulLife.com and just subscribing to whatever notices you want to receive. So. As you know, we have a whole robust series of programs since I'm already talking about it, almost 15 programs every week. You can see it all at MeaningfulLife.com. There's a calendar. You can see exactly the weekly, the special programs that we do, and, uh, and so on. So, of course, timely topics. I address those topics. But to sum up the main points, first of all, there's always something we can do. There's no such thing as paralysis. We would never be put into a situation that we don't have a power to do something about. The question is what we do. So two key points I want to make. Obviously, every possible way we can support Eretz Yisrael and the, the brothers and sisters there, and especially the soldiers who sacrifice their very lives to protect their, brother, their brothers and sisters. Anything we can do to support them, whether it's morally, financially, in any other way, by all means. Second thing, and the Rebbe would make this point time and again, real peace can only come out of strength. If it comes out of weakness, it will never be a, a lasting peace. 
because your enemy will take advantage of you because they see your weakness. It's a simple statement as that. This is not just around Israel, it's around in general, the rule of war. Of war. When there's a war, there's always going to be a winner and there's a loser. And it has to be unconditional surrender because if the enemy thinks for one second they still have some hope, you have not vanquished them. And this is not about humiliating them. It's about understanding, the, drawing the clear lines that allow people to come to terms with the realities. So mistakes were made, and I'm not going to dwell on that right now. It has to come from strength. Now, if the enemy ceases to be an enemy in a true and sincere way, and there's no more declaration of war, and there's no more attempts, but we're not in that place. That's another story altogether. That's not the situation. Anyone that thinks that is completely delusional, as you could see from all these outbreaks. The fact that it doesn't happen every day, thank God, doesn't mean that it isn't a state of war. So there's a whole different attitude when you're in that state, and that's what requires even more vigilance and strength. Now, strength does not mean being cruel. Remember, peace means peace for everyone. We cry over the shedding of blood of any human being. So even though self-defense, of course, is number one in protecting yourself, but nobody wants war. Nobody wants battles. So the only position you can take is strength, and with that strength, you do what you have to do to protect, but the goal ultimately is, is to persuade and convince your adversary that it's time to finally truly come to peace. Will that happen? That I discussed in those discussions. I don't want to go there right now. So that's the, the second point with attitude. And finally, a third point. Every battle that's fought is fought both on a physical level and a spiritual level. Those that are fighting physically, of course, are the ones on the front lines that sacrifice their very lives, are the holiest of the holy. The rest of us, whoever we're, wherever we may be in the world, as we said, every action affects, we also have to fight a war. And what is that war? The war through spiritual war, through an increase in study, an increase in prayer, an increase in zdok and charity, the three pillars upon which the entire world rests and every individual world rests. And yes, when we do that, we strengthen the Israeli soldiers, we strengthen the Jewish people in Israel and everywhere in the world. I know that may sound naive, but I'm not suggesting doing only that. We also have to fight. The battles have to be fought. But it's not naive because this is what kept the Jewish people together for thousands of years. When Yaakov, Jacob, prepared to meet his brother and realized he's, going to, he's ready for battle, his brother is going with 400 men. So what did Yaakov do? Prudently... He prayed. He prepared a bribe to appease Esau, and he prepared for war. Thank God, he only needed the first two. So wars are fought on all fronts, and each one of us has to feel that way. And not just say, oh, how bad, so bad there, and so bad. No, do something. Fight the war with the same passion as the soldiers are doing on the front line through commitment and passion and total devotion to learning praying, and acts of goodness and kindness. That's the way, that's our attitude. Everything else, the debates, the political debates people get into, it's important to have clarity. I'm going to talk about that shortly some more. It's important to have clarity. But above all, to keep in mind that we have to do something. It's not just about talking about it. Now, regarding clarity, let me move on here to the next question. 
Another question, what can we do to help the situation? Okay, I answered that. Is there hope for a peaceful future? Now, as Jews, we've always hoped for a peaceful future. That's why we call, we've always been praying, and we pray six, seven times in, in Shemun Esra alone in the Amidah every day for Mashiach. And one of the hallmarks of Mashiach is a world of peace, world peace. Like the Rambam says, there will be no more war. And not because one will win over the other, because the world will be enlightened to a higher state of consciousness. And I say the world, I mean all the world. Jews, Christians, Muslims, and all the people on this earth. The business of the world will be nothing but to know godliness. All the nations. By Matan Teirah, the Gemara and the Medrash tell us that God approached every nation and asked them if they want to receive the Torah. And in some places it says specifically the children of Yishmael. Yishmael is the ancestor of the Arab Muslim world. And the children of Esau, the ancestor of the Western Roman Christian world. And they refused. So the question is asked, so why did God offer it to them? So different answers are given. But one answer that I want to focus on is because ultimately that prepared them for the day when they will receive the principles of Sinai through the seven Noahide laws. And in some ways, the birth of Christianity and then Islam, according to the Rambam, as he says, they helped pave the way toward Mashiach. They eliminated or at least minimized paganism in the world. So for all the questions and the flaws they may have, the bottom line is they help pave the world, pave the way for the world to receive God's divine unity. So this is what we always have hoped for, and we continue to hope for. And it's not just unrealistic, because there was a time in Avram Avinu was one man and his wife Sarah was one woman, and they defied the whole status quo of the world at the time. They were nonconformists, they were trailblazers. And they introduced the idea that we don't worship ourselves and our, our, our and man-made objects and devices. We worship one higher God that's greater than all of us, created us all. At the time, it may have seemed impossible. Who would embrace such an idea? And slowly, slowly, what happened? We're almost 4,000 years later, 3,800 years later. And yes, it permeated and affected the entire world. Over 4 billion people considered themselves followers of the first original Abraham in some way and his principles. Countries today are institutionalized based on those principles of Lasse's Dokka Mishpat, kindness and justice, Tzedek and Yeshev, which is the foundation, the cornerstone of every healthy civilization. So no one can say, even the greatest skeptic, Oh, this is a nice uh, dream, pipe dream. Unrealistic, however. No, the world has changed. Is the world perfect? By no means. We see that from these wars that we're seeing again and again. But if you look at the trend, the trend is no doubt that the trend is going upward toward, in a positive way. And of course there are individuals, but you have a world today that's very different, fundamentally different than what it once was. So we have much reason for hope. How will it play itself out? That needs more discussion. What can we do? Because it seems like an impossibility that the Muslim world, the Palestinian world, whatever you call them, and the Jews in Israel don't seem to have anything in common in that sense. 
So that's a discussion which, I, again, I've, I've spoken about in those programs I mentioned before. I don't want to go here because it's just too elaborate. With, I, I want to do justice to it. It's not a two-minute conversation. So yes, we have that hope, and we continue to have that hope, and we pray for it, and we do whatever we can to get to the core of understanding that humanity, all of humanity, are all created by God in the divine image. Eight, almost eight billion people. And it's tragic to see how brothers, literally, because we all share the same ancestors, brothers, cousins, relatives, all part of one organism, and especially spiritually, cannot find the harmony within their diversity. And instead the diversity turns into divisiveness, into war, and to everything that we're seeing. When you think of it philosophically, it's completely not, not bizarre, beyond, absurd. But the fact is, people get locked into their egos, they get locked into the way they see things, and don't have that bittle, the necessity that is necessary to rise and transcend of their own views and realize another viewpoint, you may not agree with it, but it doesn't mean you have to kill that person. And here I'm speaking in a way that everybody has to look at themselves. Not that one is right and one is wrong. But again, this requires much more. But the point is, yes, there is hope. And if you're really committed to finding an approach to it, I suggest listening to the programs I had recorded that are online right now. And, uh, uh, and obviously, think about it, share with others, and see how we can put our heads together and figure out ways that we can make a difference. But there's always a positive approach that we can take. The next question. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. As I was reading the news this week from Israel, I, re I got really angry. Seeing images of terrified mothers clutching their babies in their arms, crouched on the ground in fear, and crying and hoping that their child will be safe, made me seethe with anger. I don't feel that saying Tehillim is enough. I tried that. I feel that I must do something. I live in Brooklyn and don't know what to do. Please give me advice on what I can do to help the people in Israel who are suffering in fear right now. I'm so angry and fed up. Any advice is, is appreciated. So I essentially answered this question. It, uh, I would not dismiss your Tehillim. You may not see its effect, but it has an effect. And I would not dismiss your caring and acting on it. So this leads me, in addition to everything I've said, which is the classic and the timeless, proven way that we fight our battles, including on the spiritual side, that we can increase, I said, the three pillars, study, prayer, action, is that also to get clarity, because there's so much misinformation out there. And the propaganda machine is also going on social media and other ways. So that's critical that we understand what's happening here. So if you want to do something, get yourself good information so you can respond well and clarify for yourself and for others. Not to get into debates, but simply to be able to be clear in your own mind of what are the, what are the lines here. What is our position? Is it just we are Jews and uh, Israelis and therefore we just protect our, our, uh, ourselves and that's that? Is there something deeper to it? What is our right and claim to the land? And what about what did happen in 1948? How do we explain that? I mean, the context of many Jews coming in and the Arabs complaining that they were displaced. It's important to have answers to these questions. 
And as you have answers, they get more empowered so you clear moral clarity. Important to note how the Israeli army treats, even when they're attacking enemies, they're warning the civilians. I mean, things that are unprecedented in history during wartime, you don't really see that. And how the other side, what they do is they actually use civilians to protect themselves. It's critical to understand these dynamics. And here too, I've spoken about it a lot, and I can refer you to different programs where I've done this. I said here I'm trying to be more brief, but there are very good documentation. We have a, I did once uh, in MeaningfulLife.com, you can find, there's actually a dialogue between a Palestinian and an Israeli, or rather a pro-Palestinian, a pro-Israeli, discussing all these matters. The rights over the land, who's lived there, the history, I would check that out. It's an excellent tool to be able to address these issues in a very direct way. So check it out on uh, MeaningfulLife.com. Okay. Here, Rabbi Jacobson, another question in this family. It is amazing to watch videos of the Iron Dome taking out Hamas missiles before they can land and do damage. It looks like the hand of God swatting the terrorist missiles down to protect Israel. Are there any verses in Tanakh where the prophets describe the miracles we are seeing? I've seen, even though I don't recall exactly, some people quoting different verses. You look in Tanakh, even in Chumash, how God protects the people. I'm always wary of trying to fit a Pasuk into an event that's happening because sometimes it seems forced and not natural. But there's no question that we find the Torah that Hashem says He will protect the Jewish people. Is it through Iron Dome or through other methods? Those are already the natural means. But protection is protection. During the Six-Day War, which was open, open miracles in just six days, the few amount of casualties and everything that happened then. So people refer to different verses, but the overall verse you have to remember is that God protects His people especially in Israel. Now, of course, you'll ask, what about times when God doesn't protect? We don't understand everything. I'm not suggesting I have an answer. There are times, yes, we have, we have many times, many arguments to God. But when you do see it happen, so you can bring actual verses, but I would like to more think in terms of it's a land that God's, God's providence and eyes are on it from the beginning to the end of the year, all year round. How it manifests, yes, it could be through uh, Iron Dome. It could be through a very intelligent and, uh, and technological um, military and strategy. And it could be through many other things that you find, naturally, that you find that even though Israel is outnumbered by their neighbors, has the capacity to protect itself and more than that. So that's my general response. So if there's a particular verse, I'd be happy to hear if somebody finds something that sounds very similar. As I said, I've seen, I believe, some things, but that's a general approach to that. Okay, here we go. In an ideal world, what would happen if the Palestinians current? What would, what would happen to the Palestinians currently living in Israel? Okay, very good question. I mentioned before, from a Torah approach, we do not look to kill and to hurt anybody. The Rebbe's approach, which he so articulated for so many years, 
was very clear. If in 1948, let's just, the Jews living in Israel were left alone and were not attacked by their Arab neighbors after the UN partition, what would have happened? The Jews would have grown and the Arabs and Palestinians, nobody was looking to uh, eliminate anyone. It's true, there was a refugee problem. There were big debates. Even the Arab leaders called upon the refugees to leave. And this is a whole history as well, how things turned out there. But just for assume that it was accepted peacefully. You are brothers. We're both grandchildren of Abraham. We'll live side by side peacefully. What do you think would have happened? Would there have been skirmishes from time to time? That happens. But what would have happened if there was no state of war and no declaration of war? So you'd have two populations growing and living side by side. Now, of course, the question is, what about a democracy of Israel? Arab population would grow, but so would the Jewish population. Would they outnumber the Jewish population? Would they, so to speak, vote in an election and take over the Knesset, take over control? Well, that's a matter of political question, and all depends on how things would set out. Maybe a system would be made where the Jews have a Jewish state, as was the intention. Those that want to live in that Jewish state, the Jewish state is the dominant or the, or the majority. I'm not, I'm not make, I'm suggesting this. I'm just saying it could have worked out that way if everything was peaceful. But you have to go back to that big if. So you talk about what would happen. What would happen would be if right now, which would probably require a miracle, that the Palestinians and their supporters will lay down their arms and say, yes, we will come to a negotiation and make peace. And maybe not two-state solution. A one-state solution, which the Rebbe always said should be the way to go. Because two-state solution, especially made in a time of declaration of war. So the what-if has to go back if there is indeed real, I'm saying real, not words, a real attitude and, a com- and commitment to peace. So what you'd have is you'd have different populations living in peace. We in the United States have different cultures and races. You have whites and you have blacks and you have Hispanics and Asians and so on. Yes, I know we have our challenges, but you could hypothetically see a scenario where you can have different cultures under one so-called, in one geographical location, or you figure out a way, people have different neighborhoods that they live in, and you, could, you can maintain a peace, but it all needs that big if. If there's a declaration of war, I don't have an answer what would happen to the Palestinians currently living, because they're currently living and they're declaring war in Israel. That, that means it's a state of war. So it's not an optimal situation. So in a state of war, you have to do is protect yourself and you're going to have all these outbreaks again and again and again. Now, under the circumstances, what Israel should do? Like you're saying, if an ideal world, what should Israel do? Well, what should Israel do? Israel's not going to go kill all the, the, the populations of Gaza or the West Bank or whatever it's called. The, uh, the populated cities of where Arabs and Muslims live. At the same time, they see Israel, many of them, as enemies. So all Israel can do is see it. We're in a state of war, and we have to do everything to protect ourselves. That's the situation we're in here right now. Israel is not looking to subjugate, or shouldn't be looking to subjugate the Palestinian population, meaning the Arabs that have lived there for these, all these years. Some suggest 
that they should be in some ways integrated into Jordan, into Egypt, into surrounding countries, those that are not comfortable living under the, under the, the under an area that is called Israel. That may be a solution as well. But it has to be done peacefully. No one's trying to force anyone. So these are just some thoughts. If you were talking already in an ideal world. With a recent conflagration of violence between Israel and Hamas, what are some things we can do to offer an olive branch to our Palestinian neighbors so they can know we just want to live in peace and coexist peacefully? I will say the following. I believe, I don't believe every Israeli policy was done right or correctly, that they treated the Palestinians always this, the correct way. But to say that no olive branch was offered, that's incorrect. Whether we agree on what that olive branch should be is another story. But that there's an attempt like that, I just repeat again what I said before. The Jewish people are a peaceful people. Israel seeking peace. I'm not, again, not going to defend every policy and every position, and there are different opinions in Israel itself. More, more, more aggressive position, more passive, more liberal, more conservative, right wing, left wing. But I will say that Israel is, has and is extending such a olive branch. And the more important question is, why should Israel be extending the olive branch? They should be, but why should they be the only ones? Why was the question asked, asked the other way around? I understand people will say Israel is a stronger army and is in a stronger position. Well, one second. The Arab world has many more people and much more land than Israel has. I could say, okay, the Palestinians are not the Arab people. Yeah, but are they brothers? Why don't they support each other? Why don't they extend? Now, the truth is, a peace was made, the, Arab, the Abraham Accords, with the Emirates, with Bahrain, and so on. So that's a good beginning. Again, I see no reason why that can't happen in Israel, but you're going to need to have a very different radical approach than you have right now. So what the Jewish people can do is to say and declare like I just did. Just as they do every time they even attack Hamas, they let the civilians know. Isn't that an, a... a, a, a uh, a gesture, more than a gesture, trying to protect you. Now, unfortunately, they're victims of their own people, those Palestinians, who may not want war altogether. But what more can Israel do than it's doing? I would love you to answer that question, then I can continue this conversation. Okay. One more important thing I'd like to add to this discussion this is something I remember I gave a talk to uh, a bunch of liberal leaders who were wondering why Israel should not compromise and just give up a part of its country to the Palestinians and it'll be peace. So besides the point which is critical to be made that when there's a declaration of war, when someone declares war on you, that's a different, completely changes the picture than when someone who's in peace with you and has a complaint and they want to discuss. But I gave an example. I think it's vital here in this context. I said, let's imagine that in downtown Detroit, the Arab population decided we want to become autonomous. And they begin to shoot missiles and they begin to terrorize and hurt 
and tell the government, this is our ultimatum. We will stop if you give us downtown Detroit. What do you think the United States would do? It either would kill them all or, or expel them all, deport them all. You need a country with law and order, and you do it out of strength. If someone came to you and said, your neighbor, I just want to have one little corner of your living room. Give it to me and we'll live in peace. If not, I'm going to break your windows and I'll come constantly terrorize you. So it makes sense. Why not just do that? But if a person is that type of enemy, then the next day, who stops them from saying, I want another corner? No, your house is your house. My house is my house. Stay there. You want peace? Peace with peace. Not land for peace. But even furthermore, the point I want to make is, let's just imagine if Israel decided, despite world opinion and public uh, opinion and all the pressure that comes from propaganda and all of that, and anti-Semitism included, we are a land of laws. Whether you're Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, you live by these laws. And the laws state the following. You need to follow the laws. You want to live in this country, you follow laws. If not, you go to prison or we deport you. I would not go with the option to kill everybody. No. Imagine they went with that approach to every Gazan resident, every resident in any Arab town in Israel. And the same laws apply to everybody. There's no breaking the laws. This type of like almost appeasement and ignoring criminal activity, and especially when it's coming from in a state of war, is your own, you're killing, you're destroying yourself. What would happen if Israel took that position? Yes, the whole world would condemn them. Even though any, any other country would do exactly the same, frankly. Or worse, let's be honest. What would happen? Why is no one even considering that option? That's what I would like to submit into this conversation. If you prove yourself as a citizen that's responsible and you abide the laws, that's one thing. If not... You don't belong here. Go find another place to live. Okay. So moving from one difficult topic to another, let's talk about the rise of anti-Semitic acts. With the increase of anti-Semitic attacks around the world due to the hostilities between Israel and Hamas terrorists, and in general for that matter, there have been threats here in Montreal that groups are going door-to-door to to identify Jewish homes in order to plan vandalism attacks. It has been suggested by some that we remove our mezuzahs in order not to reveal where the Jewish houses are. My question is, is this a bad idea or should we rely on the mezuzahs to protect us? And by the way, the mezuzahs at the Tree of Life Synagogue where where a terrible shooting attack occurred last year didn't do their job to protect the dozen people who were murdered. So therefore... It is a valid question. So what should we do? Okay. Well, as I mentioned before, Yaakov, Yaakov prepared three ways to deal with his brother, his hostile brother, Esau. He, he prayed. He prepared wisely an appeasement, a bribe, to buy him off, basically. And he prepared for war. Well, why didn't he just rely on prayer? Because that's the, not the Jewish way. The, t- the same God that said, have a mezuzah on your door, says also lock your door. And also says have security and call the police. So it's not either or. The Rebbe, when he explained mezuzahs, the power to, to protect, he said it's like, a me- it's like a helmet. When a soldier wears a helmet, 
he could, God forbid, be killed. But the helmet adds more protection. Now with betochen and faith and prayer and, and mezuzahs, we hope that's enough. But of course you'd prepare every other possible way. To remove mezuzahs is completely not appropriate. No. First of all, why would you remove a protection? It would be like taking away the burglar alarm. Is it guaranteed? Just because there things happen with mezuzahs doesn't mean you want to remove the protection. Just because a, a soldier was killed with a helmet on doesn't mean you don't wear a helmet next time. So absolutely mezuzahs, just like wearing yarmulkes. If a rov paskins in a given situation, that's a very rare occurrence, and I don't know if anyone will paskin in this context. What you should do is make sure the police in Montreal, in every city, protects the Jewish communities, protect Jewish homes. But no, they're not the way is to hide our Jewishness, especially a mezuzah that has a power to protect. But together with the mezuzah, we have to do everything we have to do. Now, many other questions came in about this topic. Is there indeed a rise? What should we do? The Jewish approach is not to cower in fear and not to retreat. We have to be prudent. We have to protect ourselves. We don't have to put ourselves in any additional risk. But there's a great God that protects us. And at the same time, we have to do the things, natural ways to, to help. And yes, we have to invoke government and invoke the law authorities and invoke the police and, and people who are supposed to protect us. We pay our taxes for that. And that's what a good country, a decent country of law and order, to make sure to protect and to prosecute to the fullest extent anyone that does any racist act, including, of course, anti-Semitic acts. I've talked about this in the past, and I just want to give you references to episodes 31, 251, 252, 262 through 265, 268 through 269, 281, 290, and 314. About the rise of anti-Semitism, the roots of it, if you want to cover this subject more thoroughly. If I recall, I didn't mention the cross-references, I might as well mention now, to Baal Eishcha and Yud Beis Sivan that I spoke about earlier, episodes 69, 214, 264, and 312. Okay, that's some cross-referencing, because we can't cover everything, so... I hope that will help. Okay. Here's another very painful question that came in. And I was convinced, you know, I was immediately no, I was going to read it, even though I'm not comfortable reading it. But um, it needs to be addressed. And you'll see why. Briefly, do we need to have Avis Yisrael to Jews who attack Jews? I find it exceedingly difficult to love a certain class of Jews, Jews who wish for the genocide ethnic cleansing of 7 million Jews in Israel. That behavior makes them unlovable to me. Take the message, for example, below. And the example was of Jews marching with the Palestinians and for the Palestinians that the Jews or the Israelis are aggressors. How do you not loathe such a person? I find them more disgusting than a Muslim chanting Idbach al-Yahud. For they're at least a tribal, so they're motivated by loyalty to their own at all costs. But to be disloyal to your fellow Jews and genocide of the Jews because becomes your new cause? Is there a point where Avis Yisrael ends? Help me out here. Is there a level that a Yid crosses that we no longer love them? That they inflicted curse upon themselves? and cutting themselves off. After all, we don't love 
Jesus. He was a Yid, but we have zero Rachmanus, even upon his Neshama, and 2,000 years later, are cognizant not to be Moisav Chayis, not to add energy on Nittel night. Nor were our Chazal very polite to Reitfim. Reitfim means that people that pursued, that, uh, that mastered on and informed on and pursued Jews. So did the Rebbe have a line in the sand? Presumably he didn't love these type of individuals. As we see in Ayem Yem regarding Nittel. So what would the Rebbe say in 2021 regarding Yidin that are instigating a final solution upon Eretz Yisrael? Or perhaps supporting them as some very powerful American Jews are. The reason why I ask is that on different groups that I'm on, someone was suggesting that the Rebbe's love is absolute. I do wish to point out that I do recognize that there's a difference between when the shliach, then a person is designated to the area which the Jew resides, which, which that Jew resides in, versus someone or a member of a different community finding it difficult to love the Jews, actively engaging and promoting a final solution that live elsewhere, which... Any Jew that uses the free Palestine mantra, hashtag, is even deeper in their sedition than, say, merits. Okay. Okay, very direct and pointed question. So, is a in the Torah. as Rabbi Akiva says, it doesn't make any exceptions. In Tanya chapter 32, the Alter Rebbe makes it clear that it's to all Jews, and even this, when it talks about Sina, at the end of chapter 32, he qualifies and explains what that means. In simple terms, you can hate someone's behavior, it doesn't mean you hate the person. So the same applies here. Let's talk about a Jew. is a divine soul. No matter how he behaves, he cannot destroy his divine soul. Yes, there's discussion about Mishamadim, and Reitfim, as you put it, people who converted to people who are the biggest anti-Jewish, anti-Semites. So maybe their behavior completely took control over them. Like he says, the end of chapter Yud Aleph and Tanya, the Rosh Hashanah, that even the spark becomes concealed. But the spark is still there. And therefore we, we say everybody can do tshuva. Everybody can return. So you have to, in this case, apply in the most radical way the concept of Yitamu Chatoyim Velechetim. May the sins be erased and not the sinner. I know such individuals. Some speak to me, some don't speak to me, some would not speak. And the approach has to be you don't compromise, but there's always an opening. Many of these people are misguided by the very views that, that literally brainwash them. And they're convinced that they have it all figured out. Many of them were turned off from Judaism due to very negative experiences in the Jewish world. The Tanekh but, but more than Tanekh because the Tanekh which is like a child born in captivity, you could argue, okay, doesn't know better, but at least they're not harmful. But there are some that are harmful, because they were hurt by the system, and they misunderstand Judaism to the point that they even loathe it. And they loathe religion, they loathe, and so on. And they have their own distorted views. Our job is to illuminate and to educate. That's the bottom line. This doesn't mean you have to be able to, to be friends with everybody. Some people simply you can't argue, you can't have a, be a friend with because they'll only argue these points and they don't allow friendship. But from our end, we have to do everything possible with any person we come into contact with. And for that matter, Jew and non-Jew. But of course I understand how it makes one's blood boil when you see that from your own brothers and sisters. 
from people who would have been, where would they be 80 years ago? They've been rounded up in a concentration camp, whether they were liberal, pro-Palestinian or not, and yet can behave in a way like this. Now, if they have something to point out, like I spoke to someone who's of that nature, literally pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, like a uh, someone who comes from the Noam Chomsky school of thought, said to me, and I said to him, listen, even if you have a complaint, why don't you just voice your complaint and let's discuss it or discuss it with others. Why does it have to come down to hate? Why does it have to come down to a call for arms, even violence? And it's very hard to, to really have a conversation about this because it gets emotional and it becomes very defensive. So I'm not discussing now how to speak people like this. I'm discussing our attitude. Our attitude, love, obviously, as well as to anyone. Did the Rebbe make a condition for anyone to come to dollars? Did he say that if you are pro-Palestinian or pro-certain opinions, you can't come and get a dollar from me? Did he even ask the question? Did he even suggest? Of course not. It's ludicrous. Why? Because a person comes to Afabreng and he comes to the Rebbe. He's, he's, he is who he is, no matter who he is, man, woman, or child, Jew or non-Jew for that matter, and no one looks at political or other beliefs. Because that's the bottom line. We are here to bring light, to bring godliness, Torah, to Torah and the Torah perspective to the world. So yes, it could be extremely, like you put it, actually loathe and be unlovable, but that's where the challenge is. The Abba Shem Tev says we love every Jew, even a stranger, and even one that is, falls in this place. Look, even a criminal who murdered someone is in prison. There's still obviously Yisrael to him. That doesn't mean obviously Yisrael doesn't mean you let him out of prison. He's become a danger to himself and to others. That's also part of Teda. Teda doesn't say Avish Yisrael means we overlook every crime. So you can be a complete criminal. You can do things that are horrendous. Avish Yisrael never disappears. Avish Yisrael is actually why we put him in prison. Avish Yisrael is why we actually are reprimanding him because we love him, because we love your soul and you are betraying yourself. When I say we, I mean a court of law done the right way according to Allah, according to legal authorities, however it was developed. However, that was determined, rather. But the point is, obviously, soul doesn't mean we look away. You love your children. If they do something really inappropriate, part of the love is you do something to make them better, to teach them that's not the way. So it's not a contradiction to love someone and also completely disagree with, a, with their attitude or their behavior that can be really destructive. That's the key thing. Is it difficult? Of course, because it's hard for us to separate the two. You see someone behave in a very loathsome way, in a very disgusting way, very hard to say, oh, I love his neshama, but not his behavior. But that's part of our work, that we should not let, it, let our personal emotions get in the way. You have your emotions, you have to then determine what's the best thing to do. What's the, what, what would God want you to do in this situation? You think it was easy for Avraham Avinu to defend the city of Sodom? was clearly known what kind of crimes they did. He didn't defend them. He was saying maybe there's some tzaddikim, but he was looking for something to redeem. And then when Hashem says, no, this is what it is, this is what it is. My point is that, that we do not allow ourselves to become less loving human beings because people do hateful things. We should not be defined by other people's behavior. We maintain our standards, we maintain our direction, and, our, and we forge ahead. We don't waver because of people's behavior one way or the other way. That's how I would respond to this question. Okay. And I would also refer you to episodes... 29 and 30, where I discuss similar topic. Good. Now, 
You may recall that be, doing after 30 years from Chavches Nissen, so the 28th of Nissen was 30 years from when the Rebbe said his powerful Sicha, do everything you can. So at the time and ever since, I've been getting questions about Mashiach. So as I committed myself every week, I will try to cover some of those questions. First of all, to keep the fires burning. Second of all, to answer your questions, which is the right thing to do. And thirdly, let's all learn together and become more passionate and committed. Because that's what it comes down to. Mashiach is not just a word. It represents a paradigm shift in our personal lives and our, and our, in our personal lives and in our collective lives. So the more you understand it, the more you can internalize it, the more you, we bring on that reality. That's what we are capable of doing. We can shift our consciousness. We can shift and change our attitudes. And Mashiach is an attitude change, above all. When the Rebbe said, open your eyes, or said that we have to get out of our golas plimi, our internal displacement, our internal dissonance. What was he saying? The Rebbe is saying, you have to shift your consciousness. Consciousness shifts your attitude and, your, and the world around you. So that's why it's so vital to continue to talk, but learn about it and internalize it above all. So I had a whole series of questions that are now only become even more since the last few weeks. You know, people look around at the world and say, hey, you know, the only thing left is Mashiach to come. It's true, but there's also something left that we have to do to make that happen. So God should have Rachmanis, and we finally send Mashiach and all solutions to all our problems and deaths and tragedies and attacks, wherever they may be. But still, we are here, and we are charged every moment to do what we need to do to facilitate that process and to expedite it and do whatever we can to finally be zeicha, that God, well, we were zeicha already, but that finally God should send Mashiach and the Gu'ula, and as I said, the solution to all these issues. But we continue on doing what we can. So here's a question. When Mashiach comes, will we have to wait for the priests to be trained. When Mashiach comes, will service in the Beis Amigdash commence right away? How will the Kohanim know what to do if they don't have some time to first study and train? Perhaps the community should have orientation classes now so that when Mashiach comes, everyone can be ready and know what they're supposed to do. An extension of that question we learned a few parishes back that Aaron and his sons had to train for seven days to learn how to be Kahanim. Does this mean that when Shia comes and the third base of is revealed that we will have to wait a week for the new class of Kahanim to finish their training before the base of is open to the public? Or is there a plan in advance how to get things running smoothly on day one? Are there learned people today who know how to make the priestly garments so that when Shia comes, the garments can be ready for use right away? Okay. So for two things, two responses. First of all, the Gemara and Teisvis already anticipate this question, and that's why it says, and the Rebbe brings it regarding Tchis HaMesim, that even though, according to Chazal, the Zayar, in different places, Tchis HaMesim will not happen immediately when Mashiach comes and rebuilds the base of Medesh HaShlishi and gathers all the exiles, as the Rambam says, that makes him Mashiach Vada. It doesn't talk about Tchis HaMesim yet. Yet, the Gemara says, the Teisvis says, Moshe Va'arni Mohem. Because how will they know what to do? So it says some people will rise immediately. Moshe and Aaron, namely, 
because they know all the halachas. So they'll be there to teach and show right away. That's number one. The Rebbe brings that. That's why some tzaddikim will rise immediately. Number two, the, uh, the fact is, the Chofetz Chaim, who was a Koyen, actually emphasizes and says that people should be learning Kochim, especially Kohanim, because Mashiach is soon going to come, and we should be ready for it. Which leads me to yet another broader point. That exactly is what we're doing. That's why we learn about the Beis Amigdash. That's why we learn about Mashiach and Geula. Not just as a Zgula to learn about it and that merit will have it. We learn about it because then it becomes part of us. So I understand not everybody's learning all the Hilchas, but we know in the three weeks the Rebbe called upon us to learn Hilchas Beis Abchira. Sech Temidus. The Psukim in Yecheskel. The Kapitlach in Yecheskel that talk about the Third Temple and its measurements. If you learn it properly, you'll really know what the Bissamirish Shlisi is like, and you may be, be called upon to be able to help build it. Or the different opinions whether it have to be built, Mashiach will build it, or it's already built, and all we have to do is put up the gates. The different ways it's explained. But regardless, all these different laws, that's taka what we learn. And if you really believe Mashiach is coming right here, the more you learn, it's like you're learning something that's about to happen. So Adarabah, that's exactly what we should be doing. And there's going to be individuals that will know enough that we don't have to wait. No, we'll not have to have a week wait, wait, or a training period. Either Moshe and Aaron or those that know will help those that don't know. And the things that we need to learn, Mashiach already figure out how to teach it. I'm sure they won't have, won't have an issue with that. The biggest issue is Mashiach should come already. The rest, I'm sure, will be resolved. Okay. Another question. Will we have the Beis Amigdash and Chis HaMesim right when we know Mashiach has arrived? If not, how long? So the Beis Amigdash, the Rambam says clearly, as I just mentioned. Chis HaMesim, generally speaking, is not necessarily in stage one. It can happen in what's called the second Tkufa, the second period. How long? There are different opinions on the matter. 40 years, less than 40 years, in stages. So that's something that needs to be looked at more in detail. The Rebbe actually has a letter that was initially printed in a kovitz called Shuvah Sibiyurim, Kovitz Labavitch, which had a modder, a section called Shuvah Sibiyurim, where the Rebbe answers questions. And one of them, can the Rebbe explain the details around Chiyas HaMesim? It's fascinating and very insightful in, and full of information of all these questions of when will Chiyas HaMesim happen and to whom and all the different details around that. Okay. Will Mashiach be a Kohen? Well, the answer is, Mashiach comes from Beis David. Beis David is Shevet Yehuda, not Shevet Levi. So no, he's not, technically not will be a, not be a Kayan. Um, I spoke about this in uh, episode 344, and uh, I received a letter from someone who wrote that Mashiach could also be from Beis David and a Kayan Godel. A Melech is Ben Acher Ben, the Melech of the Mashiach, is Melech Mashiach, comes from the house of David. But because Mashiach will also be a Pchar, firstborn, and he's referring to the Rebbe. So it says in Sfarim, and he brings one place from Erda Chaim HaKadosh, Bamidbar, Gimel Memhei, Pasha Bamidbar 345, that Kohuna will return to the Bechadim when Mashiach comes. So Bechadim will be Kohanim, so you could also be a Kohen Gadol. Okay, an interesting take on that. 
I am not going to argue with it. Um, look into the whole concept of when the Kohanim will be Bechayim. The Bechayim will be Kohanim, will return to the Bechayim. What will happen with the Kohanim? We know that Lassadlov, the Levim, will be Kohanim. Like he says, it brings in Tanya from, from, this, from Yecheskel and other places. So it's a good discussion on its own, which I'll reserve for another time. How do you reconcile all of that? Okay. Could Mashiach be here and now, and we don't know? Well, absolutely. The Chsam Sefer writes, and the other Svarim, Bartanura, and Rus, and so on, that in different generations, the Mashiach is so unworthy to be Mashiach. He himself may not even know until the Abishta tells him. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, until he was 80 years old, the Abishta didn't tell him that he's going to be the Goel Rishon, the first Redeemer. So that definitely could be the case. And he may not know, we don't know. And then the time comes, we'll definitely find out. Okay. Good. With that, um, I, I wanted to cover some more matters, but I see time is limited. So what I'm going to do now, go to the Chassidus question and then the essays. Chassidus question, what is the difference between the Nefesh Alekis versus the Yetzir Tev and the Nefesh Abamis versus the Yetzir Hara? So one of the reasons I'm addressing this question is because I'm actually right now in the new program I began uh, 13 weeks ago, my life, Tanya Applied, which you can see on chassidusapplied.com, tanyaapplied.com, find all the details every Mitzray Shabbos, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, a half hour Shir and Tanya, we just began Chapter 2. So I did it um, last night, and uh, you can check it out, and, uh, and partake in these weekly classes. So this question is very appropriate. There's a mimer from the Tzemach Tzedek on Tanya, we discusses the two nefoshes, the two souls that Alter Rebbe discusses from Abchaim Vital, Shari Gdusha, Shari Gdusha, the animal soul, the divine soul, and in context of Yetzir Tev Yetzir We know the Pasuk talks about Yetzir Leva Odom Ramenu Urav, and Yetzir Tev is the good inclination. So in general, there's different points to it, but one general point is Nefesh Alekis and Nefesh Abamis, as the Alter Rebbe explains, both have ten keiches, ten faculties. And Zeluma the animal soul, also has ten faculties. From Chachma through Malchus, Moichin and Midas, intellect and emotions. Yes, in the animal soul, the emotions are, are dominant, the impulses, and the, in the divine soul, the reflective mind is, is dominant, but they both have ten Kechas. Yetzir Tev and Yetzir Hara is referring to the Midas of the Nefesh Alekis and Nefesh Abamis, respectively. The Midas of the Nefesh Alekis, of the full Nefesh of ten Kechas, the Midas of Nefesh Alekis are called the Yetzir Tev. So it's the right side of the heart. The Yetzir, the right side. Yetzir. The, the Midas of the Nefesh Abamis, the seven Midas of the ten faculties of the animal soul are called Yetzir Hara. The left side of the heart, which is Mole Dam, as he explains in chapter 9 in Tanya. And that's where there is a, uh, a conflict. Who's going to win? By Nefesh Alekis, the mind should be controlling the emotions. By the Nefesh Abamis, the emotions control the mind. And hence you have the two different expressions, Nefesh Alekis, Nefesh Abamis, the full faculties, the full soul, the Nefesh, and Yetzir Tev and Yetzir are the seven Midas in that Nefesh. Okay. So let's now do the, the essays. So we're reviewing the sixth annual 
My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. And we've been reviewing four each week. This is the English essay, the two Hebrew essays, one for men, one for women, and the creative submission. So let's begin with the first, the 23rd place winners. The essay in English, You Are Stronger Than You Think, by Aliza Liner, age 26, London, UK. Very powerful essay, very well worth reading, and, to, and, and very personal. Weaves together her personal challenges in her life and how Chassidus addresses them. So you have this perfect combination of personal application of deep Hasidic ideas and focuses on main three main points in Chassidus. The idea that God does not give us more than we can handle, the concept of silence and acceptance and not trying to understand infinity with our finite minds, and three, the idea that we are part of a whole, a bigger picture of Judaism and the Jewish people. That's the essay in English. The creative submission gr- called Gray World, it's lyrics, a song and lyrics, by Chaya Salika Garbos, age 20, Machon Alta Seminary, hometown London, UK. It's a song about the struggle to navigate through a world in which what is good and what is bad is hard to differentiate. This dilemma can only be resolved through the study of Tanya. As a lyric in the song states, please give me a shelter, a map to my heart. This song also touches upon specific issues that Tanya discusses at length, such as in the chorus, it speaks about the constant Aveda to be a Bainani, in-betweeners all along. It's hard to see when the world is promoting, see when the world, see the holiness when the world is promoting duality, and so on. These two essays, the essay and the creative, can be seen at chassidusapplied.com. And the two Hebrew ones, which can be seen at diralo.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org, is Midas Hakas, which how to control anger, by Levi Alishevitz, student in Kiryat Gat, Israel, using chassidus, how to deal with and analyze and then deal with anger. And the Hebrew essay in women is Lahaimin Batsmenu Legalasis Akechis Atmunimbonu. To believe in ourselves and to reveal this, the hidden faculties and resources we have. Chana Weinfeld, student in Eilat, Israel. Again, a powerful essay about how Chassidus teaches us to access and reveal the deeper powers we have. And with that, we conclude My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 355. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. As always, it's an honor. Everyone be healthy and well. May our brothers and sisters in Israel be protected in the fullest sense of the word. And may we have only shalom and everyone protected everywhere in the world. Everyone have a very good tavach, good week. And I look forward to see you next Sunday, 8 p.m. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com donate.